the story we're hearing today is the story of Jesus calming a storm. Now, I imagine we would all say this is a story that demonstrates Jesus' power over nature. Are we in? Yeah, that. Okay, good. That's That's affirmative. It definitely does that. But it does so much more than that, especially because Luke, in his skill and as he teaches the the people he loves the scripture as he writes to dearest Theophilus and whoever is going to be in his church reading it, he puts this right by this other familiar story of Jesus finishing the trip across the lake after the sea is calmed and this man with many demons being rescued, being freed, being saved. And, And especially as we look at these together, it's not just about Jesus' power like he's good at a kid's children party, right? I feel like when we talk about power, the power of Jesus, many times we're only talking about miracles. We're only talking about Jesus' ability to do stuff that we couldn't do or to do stuff that we couldn't do without him. And for sure, Jesus is that powerful, but it's so much more than that. The, what I want you to be listening for and what we'll be talking about as we go is this just is not that Jesus has learned how to calm storms or cast out demons. Jesus is not simply an exorcist and an excellent weatherman. No, rather, he, it's more than power, it is authority. Do you see the difference? It is not just something Jesus knows how to do because he's the son of God. It is him being the creator the Son of God, the authority of everything in heaven and on earth. And then these are both also stories they are going to um, challenge us to say, what is the proper response to that kind of authority? As we stand in the presence of it. Because, you know, something that, I don't know, how would I say this, shocks me. The, the 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 more I study scriptures, I'm frustrated with former me. You know what I'm talking about? where we see the power of Jesus and we preach sermons and and write articles and teach stories about how you too can have the power of Jesus. Maybe we should first learn how to bow before the power of Jesus. This is not just Jesus having great power. This is Jesus being great authority. And in the presence of authority, we have to ask ourselves, what is the proper response? And you're going to see a couple different responses. And one is fear, and one is faith. And I would set before you that those might be the only two responses possible when we actually come face to face with who Jesus is, with the God of the universe in flesh. So, how you doing? You good? Are you nervous? Oh, good, good, good. I, I'm, I'm glad you're not, because I hope this works and we do it all the time. So Paula, why don't you get us started? Everybody open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 8 and verse 22. One day, one day, hey, could we get Paula's microphone on? That'd be awesome. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Okay, where's the other side of the lake? Let's figure this out. I have a couple of maps to show you. Here's the first one. Wham. Boom. Okay, so this is the Sea of Galilee. I, you know, it's amazing how much life is around the Sea of Galilee. You think about all of these fishermen around these shores making their living off of fishing. The Sea of Galilee is about two-thirds the size of Lake Tahoe. So it's a big lake, but it's not like Great Lakes big. It's a 
large, moderate-sized lake. Kind of the stuff does flow into it, but it's kind of the headwaters of the Jordan. It's the biggest, uh, biggest body of water that kind of ends up as the Jordan River. And, and if you look on the, the red box on the left, like the upper left, like the, uh, yeah, to the, to the west on the map, that's where Jesus has been. That's kind of Jesus' hometown. You'll see, um, if, you could, if you could read the words here, you'd see like Jerusalem and stuff, not even on the map, way down south. So this is, this is like Capernaum, Galilee over there. Jesus says, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So in a very physical, real way, he is crossing the Sea of Galilee. So I, I imagine if you were to say, hey, you and eight of your friends are going to row across Tahoe. Well, you would say, that's not nothing. I'd have to bring enough snacks, but probably we wouldn't die trying. You know what I mean? This is probably possible, especially for these skilled fishermen who grew up on this lake and know how to do it. So, so that's where they're going. The next map I'd like to show you gives us a little more insight into what Jesus means by the other side of the lake. So now the, the little lake there in the middle is the Sea of Galilee, and this gives us a little broader perspective of the territory. So you see that orange place is Galilee. That is Jewish territory. That is where Jews live, and they worship Yahweh, and it's the country. It's kind of far away from uh, Jerusalem, but at least three times a year, they make the trek down to Jerusalem for the feast. They honor Yahweh. This is a home game for the Jewish Messiah. Whether or not people there accept Jesus as the Messiah is another thing, but this is the place where the, where the Jewish Messiah, just being convinced that he's the Jewish Messiah, would really mean something to you. Now, if you see where Jesus is going to cross there, it's right on the border between a couple of different places. One is Philip the Tetrarch's uh, land, his dominion, his domain, and he was one of Herod's sons, when Herod, like the, the Christmas Herod, when he died, his, um, his uh, land, his dominion was divided between his sons into four different places, and this was the place where Philip landed, and it is not populated anymore, mostly by Jews. Jews are a, a, a small minority. It is mostly populated by people from Syria, people who are Arabs by nationality, so they would come with all of the, like, the downstream of all of the Canaanite gods that you hear about in the, in the Old Testament. Now, even that is very complicated because we've been conquered by Assyria and there's a pantheon that came with there. Then we've been conquered by Babylon and there's a pantheon of gods that came there. But you can very, very, we would use the word secular, very just like whatever gods may be. And that's what's going on in that pink area. Then in the purple area, I don't know if you can read that, that's the Decapolis, Deca. Opolis, 10 cities. These were a collection, the area where there was a collection of 10 Roman cities. We'll talk about this in a minute, but this is where like Rome kind of staged for their occupation of all of the rest of what we would call the Middle East. All of the, the, the east part, eastern part of the Mediterranean down to North Africa, it was all like this is where Roman soldiers were stationed, then they would take tours into uh, Jerusalem or into Judea, into, into Galilee, but this was very much a Roman stronghold. So you know what's happening there. They're worshiping the Roman pantheon, and this is paganism in full force. Um, before it was, uh, you know, controlled by Rome, it was Greece, and so there's Greek architecture and Greek thought, and we really appreciate what's going on in Athens, 
uh, philosophically and intellectually, and we love what's going on in Rome um, politically, and so not a home game for the Jewish Messiah. When Jesus says, let's go to the other side of the lake, he's not just talking about geography. He is talking about geography. There's going to be a boat ride from one side of the lake to the other side of the lake. And much more, though, is going on. From a Jewish perspective, this was demonic turf. This was the place where Yahweh was not welcome. In fact, I don't even know if the common Jewish person is really praying for salvation for the people in the Decapolis or in Philip's territory. No, we're praying for salvation from them. You with me? So this is spiritually as dark as you like. It is probably thriving as far as culturally, but spiritually very dark and very, very hostile for a Jewish person, especially a Jewish leader, especially somebody who is claiming to be the king who is going to establish the kingdom of God, reestablish the kingdom of God beginning in Israel. So let's go to the other side of the lake. That's no longer just a place on a map in Sunday school. That is a philosophical, emotional thing to say. You with me? Um, on Wednesday, uh, come and come to Bible study and we'll, we'll flesh out this, but let me get you thinking about now. Where's our other side of the lake? <laughs> where, where is it in, in our culture? Just think about it, but be praying about it. Where is it that God might send us to people who are hostile to Jesus in order that we might demonstrate the great love of Jesus even over on the other side of the lake. Are you with me? I'm talking in metaphors. I like poetry. It's a, it's a weakness. Um, where is it that God might send us? <laughs> write them all down. <laughs> Man, it might be your next door neighbor. So Paula, would you, would you pick up for us? So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. Does that seem like the thing that Jesus would do? Shouldn't he be writing? Shouldn't he be planning? What, well, what's going on? He's there, but look, this is actually starts off, and we don't think about this scene this way, but this starts off very peaceful, very, very restful. It's like Jesus is getting a respite from all of the work he had been doing in Galilee. It almost looks like we're going to go to the other side of the lake almost for a retreat. Let's go hide over there for a minute from all of the people who know you as the healer, who know you as the, uh, the miracle worker. And not only that, I think what's really highlighted here is at this point, his disciples feel fine without his help. As he sleeps in the bottom of the boat, the fishermen probably don't need the carpenter or a Messiah for that matter. They are just fine. Jesus, we're on the water. This is our territory. We're doing just fine. But then... And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. Okay, now maybe they need him. What has to happen for professional fishermen 
to have their boat filling with water. I don't even know the answer to that, but maybe some of you do. Something tragic has to happen. This has to be bigger than they ever thought. And not only that, there was this like local folklore. Um, I, I, I don't know if we have, if, you're, if you like sports and you're superstitious, I always say when it comes to baseball, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious. And so there's like, there's like I don't believe in the baseball gods, but I've been stung by them. You know what I'm talking about? And I wonder if it's just, <laughs> just kind of like that, that uh, the local folklore of this lake was these winds would whip down um, the Sea of Galilee coming north to south and just powerful winds. You guys know what this looks like. You've seen a windstorm that's clear, but it's super windy out on our bay. You know what those white caps look like. You know what that feels like. You know, it's like, let's go home. This is no place to be in a kayak, right? And so you have an idea for what they're experiencing. Um, but in all of that, as those winds came whipping down, the local folklore that was that a demon was behind that, that there were spiritual forces behind this physical thing that was happening and maybe they made too much of spiritual entities and maybe we make too little but either way these fishermen are not just afraid of the wind but what might be behind the wind so the big idea is that the danger was real this is not one of those movies where jesus was like ha you were never in real danger i was just testing you no Luke is very clear. The boat is filling with water. The danger is real. They have gone from a situation that they feel in control of to a situation that is way out of control like that. This is not a fake test of faith. And life isn't a fake test of faith either. This isn't a movie um, where there was never any real danger. You and I will be in real danger. You and I will be in spots where a minute ago we were in control. A minute ago, it all made sense. Jesus can sleep. We don't need him. And then all of a sudden, you get a phone call and everything turns upside down. Faith isn't denying that there's danger in the world. You know, I think um, sometimes we use faith to be like, you shouldn't be scared. Or, and that'll preach. It's not all wrong. Or, uh, you shouldn't be concerned about anything. Faith is not a lack of understanding that there's evil or difficulties or trials or struggles in the world. Rather, faith is a particular kind of response to those trials, to the evil that's in the world. All right, verse 24. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. So to the disciples' credit, they went to Jesus. And if all you have to muster, if you are in a season in your life where all you can really think to do is go to Jesus and go, hey, we're about to die, that's still the right thing to do. That's still the right place to take our struggle, to take our sorrow, to take the danger around us. That's a valuable prayer. The disciples do go to Jesus. If that's all you've got, then do it. You know, this is probably a good time to pause a little bit too and let you know that every commentator uh, makes, uh, makes a point to, to talk about all the parallels between this story and Jonah. Um, Jonah was told to go to the Gentiles. He was told to go. He's the only of our prophets that is sent to the Gentile nations. And now Jesus is going to the other side of the lake, to the Gentile territory. 
Jesus and Jonah are both asleep below deck. Jonah is wakened and knows that he is wronged, but Jesus is awakened and is in complete control. Jesus is awakened and not worried. Jonah's storm is used to steer Jonah back to the Gentile mission that he was on. Jesus' storm comes as maybe a perceived barrier to the Gentile mission that Jesus is on, but demonstrates that unlike Jonah, who says, I guess you're just going to... Jonah's very dramatic. It's just, it's a melodrama, right? Jonah, what should we do? Throw me overboard. Um, On the other hand, the, the panic that you see in Jonah, we don't see in the Son of God. Rather, the ways to compare this story and Jonah are so powerful because we get to contrast and say, Jonah is completely out of control and needs to be turned around. Jesus is completely in control and is fine keeping going. The sea is always a picture of chaos. Almost every time there's a raging sea or there's a storm or whatever, um, it's a picture of just the, 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 the opposite of the kingdom of God, just chaos and disorder that naturally happens in the world. Uh, God is in control in the Jonah story and Jonah is thrown into the chaotic waters in order to turn him back. But as the waters of chaos approach Jesus, we find out actually God's in the boat and nobody's in danger. Let's keep reading. He said to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Where? Where? location question. Not how big is your faith, but where is your faith? And can I tell you that that is the question as it relates to faith? Not much how faith do you how much faith do you have, but rather where is your faith placed? Not how big, not when will you have it, but where? We'll talk more about this after Paula reads a little more, but overcoming fear overcoming danger are there places in your life i don't want to make this too metaphorical because they're real people in a boat but are the storms of life raging in your life every once in a while are there places in your life where you felt in control and then obviously you are not where you felt okay without the presence of god controlling every aspect of your life but all of a sudden you're crying out for help well the question is not going to be you need more faith. The question is going to be, you need to have your faith in the right spot. Paul, I'll read another verse and I'll talk more about that. And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? That really is the only question. It's a question that comes up in every gospel. It's the only question that matters in your life. I talk about it all the time. The only question that you really need to answer in your life is, who is Jesus? Who is this? Isn't it interesting that they had left their fishing business? They had left their families. They had walked away from tax collectors' booths. They had left, they had denied themselves and followed Jesus. But now when they see this, they go, who is this? That's kind of like what it is growing in the family of God, isn't it? You make a decision for Jesus, but then you learn more, you see his greatness, you go, wait a minute. This is a bigger thing than I thought. He is greater, more marvelous. I am less in control of this than I thought. I have not found a good philosophy by which to live my life. Rather, I have found the king of the universe before whom I should bow. 
I'm guessing these guys had a ton of faith in other things, like their sailing ability. I bet you have a ton of faith in other things. One of the most dangerous things you can be in this world is competent. Where you're not afraid, you know what I mean? Where you kind of wake up and go, I got it. I know how to do this. I, I'll, I'll be fine. I know do A plus B, and then everybody will go, wow, what a great job. I really don't, I'm not, not nervous about anything. I don't feel like I need anything. I'm trained. Everything's okay. These men certainly had that. They had faith in their sailing ability, tons of it. They had faith in their past experience on the lake. They hadn't, they hadn't not come home yet. It had always worked out fine. But then when all that falls apart, fear sets in. And faith, is, faith in ourselves is like that. Can I just challenge you with that today? That's the way faith in us and our abilities always is. You may, uh, most days, you feel like you've got what it takes. Most days, you've been on this lake before. <laughs> There's no need to pray without ceasing. There's no need to like capture every thought and consult God on every detail to give thanks for every breath. No, you trust yourself plenty. You're a good sailor and you know it. But if that is where your faith is placed, there will come days, maybe whole seasons, where you are utterly aware that you are not enough. There's a whole culture of like memes and, and, and custom coffee mugs like saying, you are enough. And I like that if by what you mean by that is if somebody told you that you weren't valuable, that was a lie. But if the answer is, if what, that, if what we mean by that is you are autonomous, you have everything you need all by yourself. I'm not in. We all feel like that sometimes, but then you figure out that actually life is bigger than you can handle, even if you're a professional fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. And if that's where your place, faith is placed, there's going to come a day or a season that the lake is angrier than you thought and you are all out of ideas. That evil shows up and all of a sudden you go from confidence and self-assured to, wait, we need to stop asking how much faith and start asking where is my faith placed? Because it is way better to have a little bit of confidence in Jesus than it is to have absolute confidence in yourself. You just got to believe in yourself. Is that right? I think you got to believe in Christ. I think self-belief will lie to you. It had these men. Instead, you don't need a mountain of faith in you or your abilities. You need a mustard seed of faith. In Jesus. And that mustard seed will grow. The amount of faith will increase, but it matters not the size of your faith. It matters where it's placed. Paula. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So Luke makes it pretty clear that as soon as Jesus stepped into Gentile territory, the Gentile world was there to meet him. You know, we live in a time of horror movies and, 
And so we might automatically think about how like morally evil or, or how dark and scary this scene was. But the first readers would have focused more on how profoundly unclean this scene was. This man had demons. We don't know, uh, we don't know this guy's origin story. I don't know if it was like one bad decision at a time opening up doors to the spiritual realm. I don't know if it was just the culture that he was raised in that opened those doors. I don't know if it was, if it was sin that had opened him, his life to demonic activity. But what we do know is this man was suffering greatly. And was probably exact, this was probably exactly what a Jewish person would expect to see on that side of the lake. You know what I mean? Like when your mom tells you, don't go over there, it's going to be bad. And then you go over there and it's bad. And you're like, I'll listen to my mom forever. This is probably exactly what they thought. See, Jesus, we go to the other side of the lake and we got this crazy demon guy who's like all up on us now. This is why we stay in Galilee said he wore no clothes, a profound sign of uncleanliness. He lived among tombs, probably in the caves uh, along the edge of the lake where the dead were, were entombed. So he's touching dead things. He's naked. He's got demons. This guy was not going to be welcome at church. Are you with me? This guy was emblematic of all that opposes God. And he seems so strong. What's Jesus going to do? The proper Jewish response to this kind of uncleanliness is to avoid it. Think about the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You see somebody hurting and dying and unclean, what do you do? You pass on the other side. You got to keep yourself clean. But we will learn on the other side of the lake what we've already learned in Luke on the Jewish side of the lake, that Jesus is the one who makes the unclean clean. Please don't just leave it with Jesus, the one who heals people. That is true, but that is not nearly as profound as Jesus is the one who makes the unclean clean. We're in verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. There's lots of interesting stuff about the title, the Most High God. Luke has used the title Son of Man to refer to Jesus a few times. Son of Man was a very Jewish way to refer to the Messiah. It's a, it's a callback. It's a reference to the book of Daniel where the Ancient of Days and one like a Son of Man are part of end times prophecy. And so when we, rela- when we say son of man, we're talking about Jesus is the guy that Daniel was talking to. But does this, does this guy in, uh, from the Decapolis care what Daniel wrote? No. Why would he? He's not read the Old Testament. He's involved in paganism. And so instead of identifying him as the son of man, these demons identified Jesus as the most high God and to a polytheistic culture, the most high God is the most profound thing to call Jesus. Just think about it practically. There's like a hierarchy of gods in their in their view, right? And you know, the the spiritual realm is much more full and active than you and I can see, but these demons can see it very clearly. They see Jesus and they don't go, oh no, we're in trouble. He seems strong. They say, what have you to do with us, most high God? 
Remember James, the book of James, saying that demons believe in God and they tremble before him? That's not just poetry. That's not just metaphor. That's what happens. This is a profound example of it. The spiritual realm is veiled for us, not for these demons. We talk about power and principalities and thrones, but demons have seen it, and when they see Jesus, they immediately know him to be the top of the food chain, the most high God. We should bow. We should recognize the authority of Jesus. We should not be in a relationship with Jesus for what we're going to get out of it. We should bow before him as his subjects, be adopted by him as our father, and honor him, love him, worship him. Verse 29 gives a summary of other ways that this man had tried to be handled. He had been chained up, he had been shackled, nothing worked, and then just a word from Jesus and the man is free. We might think about that. There's lots of ways that people try to control evil behavior modification and changing habits, but Jesus just frees people. The world doesn't need behavior management. The world needs Jesus. The world doesn't only need the perfect set of rules and laws and leaders. The world needs Jesus. Our mission is the, those in the kingdom of God. We would do well to simply bow before our king be led by him into the world with this message of what the world is missing is the Most High God. The people in the Decapolis were worshiping lesser gods. The people around us are worshiping lesser gods as well. What the world needs, what I need, what you need, what our neighbors need is contact with the Most High God. Where's your faith? Not how much faith do you have, but are you struggling? What little faith you have, where is it placed? Paul, verse 30. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. So this area, the Decapolis, across the lake was, as we said, the staging area for Roman military in the whole region, the whole area. And Legion was the largest group of Roman soldiers. There's a, there's a little jab here from the demons. It's a reminder that not only did demons have control of this man, but that Rome had control of Israel. Oh, I'm Legion. Just like legions of Romans are, have taken over your hometown, that's how we've taken over this man. And so what we see in the deliverance of this man is Jesus is not only a local miracle worker who is going to heal this man, free this man from demons. Rather, he is the great I am who is going to free Israel from the evil that it's being occupied by too. He can deliver Israel. He can deliver us. The kingdom of God is happening right here. Paul over in verse 32. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them into these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Of all the symbols of uncleanliness, pigs are the top of that, uh, mostly because they wreck golf courses. <laughs> It's not true, but they do a number on golf courses. That is true. Now, 
Pigs were obviously the most unclean. There's no Jewish person in the world that would be happy um, to have pork for dinner. No, this was anathema. This was something that you absolutely could not do. And so in this region, which now belongs to Philip the Tetrarch or belongs to Rome, that used to be when Joshua conquered the place, this was Manasseh. It used to be Israel. And now it's devolved into a place where there's pig herders. It wasn't just evil, it was unclean, unfit for the presence of God. And what do you do with things that are unclean for the presence of God? Well, you keep them out, you send them away, you don't let them in the temple, unless God himself shows up and goes, I'm going to make this place clean. If there is uncleanliness in you, would you bow before Jesus, who is the one who makes the unclean clean? Jesus demonstrates his absolute power, his absolute authority over demons, but does it in a way that it also shows his absolute power to judge. Jesus' authority over demons is clear. He cleanses the land of the unclean pigs. Jesus is the one who makes the unclean clean. He is also the one who can say, this isn't right, get rid of it. Jesus was not just here to be meek and mild, although he was but rather also to demonstrate that he is, in fact, the Most High God. Isn't it funny that the demons so quickly see that he's the Most High God and everybody else is arguing about it? Maybe we should bow. Maybe we don't read passages like this and go, you too can have the power of Jesus, but rather we read passages like this, we fall on our face and go, Jesus, I will follow you. We're too quick to talk about Jesus' power and then move right into how we might share in that power, just bow, just be in awe. We too should say, who is this? That the winds obey him, that demons obey him, that he has authority, not just power, not just tricks, not just a way of doing things, but absolute authority. Verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. I think faith and fear are the only two options when you meet Jesus. I think when you really see who God is and you really see that that's Jesus, the only options are to respond with fear or with faith. You either put your trust in him or you obviously know all of a sudden that there is something so much bigger than you, so much greater than you that you should fear. Why are these guys afraid now? Shouldn't they be relieved? After all, this guy was a nuisance. This demon-possessed guy is running around naked. Funerals could not have been fun with this guy in town. Maybe they would have been physically afraid of the man before, but... but as he was a wild man living in the caves, but now they're confronted with actual authority, actual power. The disciples have the same realization on the lake. The, the danger before, when it was just the wind I was afraid of, I at least knew I was the good guy. Like, I'm the good guy and the wind is bad. You with me? Okay, the, the crazy uh, demon-possessed guy is bad and we are good. But then you see the power of Jesus and you no longer feel like the good guy. Rather you go, oh no, he can see right through me. 
He is not just something that I use so I can stay safe. No, rather, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. I should bow. The demons know it immediately. The townspeople are starting to figure it out too. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. That's so cool, man. So this madman in the cave becomes the first missionary to the Gentiles. It's interesting that the people in the surrounding cities were so fully aware of what had happened, and yet they just want Jesus to go away. Why? Well, he had disrupted their economy. They were pig farmers, and now all, at least a herd of pigs is down in the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, as Jesus undoes the uncleanliness in you, it might take some stuff. There might be some losses in this world. Jesus has a power they don't understand. They recognize the power of Jesus without recognizing the love of Jesus. Can I say that again? They recognize how powerful Jesus is without recognizing how loving Jesus is because it's only fear or faith. And you see it at both of these. One event has happened and this man goes, Jesus, let me follow you. I don't even know what that means. Is it this boat? Do we get in this boat? Where are we going? What are we doing? I don't know. I just know I want to be with you because I've tried everything else and I ended up naked running around the tombs. I'm with you now. Jesus says, no, go back and be a missionary. Go back, tell everybody what, what's happened. But the rest of the people, the same event happens and they want Jesus to go away. It's either fear or it's faith. It's never like a rational partnership between you and Jesus. It's never like, Jesus, you can have custody of my life Sundays, Wednesdays, and every other Friday night. No, rather, you say, God can't tell me what to do, and you tell him to go away. Or you say, he's the authority. He's the authority in my life, too. There was a vice principal at my high school named Mr. Miller. And I hated getting called to his office because I was not a bad kid. I was just an irritating kid. You know, Mr. Miller was walking by uh, the group of friends where I hung out one day with a full cup of coffee and I had Halloween poppers. You know, like stuff like that. You know, just dumb, just dumb. So I'd get called to Mr. Miller's office and it would be conversations like him going, <laughs> and I'd be like, I don't know, man. I can't tell you. My sister sang at Mr. Miller's wedding. <laughs> we had different, hey, Amanda, said, hey. We had different relationships with Mr. Miller. It was all about how we treated him, how you viewed that authority. See, God is the authority in the universe. And you're either going to fight it, and you're going to have, al you're going to have altercations there. You know, uh, Cornelius Van Til, uh, old 
dead theologian guy, um, said we all have a relationship with God. It's just a relationship of grace or it's a relationship of wrath. Once you meet God, you have an option. This is not just a story about, see how powerful Jesus is? He calmed the waters and cast out the demon. This is a story about how Jesus is the authority in the universe, and you can either throw yourself at his feet and say, I will follow you anywhere, or you can decide to say, I need you to leave because I'm afraid of that kind of power. Why do people decide not to follow Jesus? These guys, it's out of fear. John 6 tells us that Jesus says things that are hard to hear and people leave. Some people, he doesn't live up to their messianic expectations. You know, we thought you were going to win wars. Some people, he just asked too much. You think of the rich young ruler. Just couldn't do it. Just couldn't give everything. This is a story that teaches us the extreme opportunity you have and the extreme consequences you have as you decide whether or not you're going to submit to the authority of Jesus. Life in the kingdom of God is not just mental assent to truth um, statements. It is a full life. I see the uncleanliness in me. And Jesus is the one that makes the unclean clean. And if he says, get in the boat, I will get in the boat. And if he says, go back home and tell people what has happened to you, then I will do that. But he is the authority in my life. You know, just as we apply this, I think it's all about that. Like right now, and I know you know the answer to this question. I know, I know but just right now, pretend it's fresh. Pretend it's, it's right now you have the chance. Would you just decide who is the most high God? Because... If it's something that's not God, then stop pretending. If there's something else in your life that is more valuable, that has more authority, that has more power, that loves you more, well, then go worship that. What is the most high God? Not the pantheon of like, well, my job and my family and Jesus and money and entertainment, they're all really important aspects of my life. No, what is the most high God? What is the thing of all of those gods? What's the one that the rest of them have to submit to? What's the most high God? And then go live like it. Reject him and go it alone. Or submit to him and find peace. And then, would you just decide where your faith is going to be? I talk to people a lot who go, I just don't have a lot of faith. Who said you need a lot of faith? You think, you think Jesus is like, pull your end. You know, you think it's you and Jesus on a piano and he's like, come on, lift harder. It's not about your strength. It's about who do you trust? And if all you can do is trust Jesus in your life with a bead of sweat coming down your... And it'd be so much easier to just trust yourself and like wake up and like, you know, uh, listen to some super affirming, like you've got what it takes, get out there, you're the best and everybody loves you and go. And you go, yeah, I'm pumped up, I could go. That would be so much worse than just going, Jesus, I don't understand how you're going to do this. I don't see what you're doing. I don't understand. I don't, I don't get what happens next. I don't have very much faith, but this little faith I have, I'm going to place in you. Who's the most I got? And where's your faith? 